It's 2001, or 1983, or 1965, or 1925. Your friends are sleeping over. Just past midnight, one of them clears off your table and brings out a smooth wooden board and what looks like a small triangle with a hole in it. Hello, reads the board in ornate lettering. Goodbye. Your friend smiles conspiratorially at you. Want to talk to a ghost? Playing History, the podcast where we delve into the history and cultural context of popular board games. I'm Andrew Tran, my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Kaylin Doyle Myerskoff, my pronouns are they and them. This month, we'll be looking at the Ouija board, an enduringly popular family board game, and some say divination tool. We'll examine the roots of the Ouija board in the American Civil War and late 19th century hauntings its standardization in the early 20th century, and its continued popularity today. In the process, we'll encounter the history of the occult, its connection to household names from Arthur Conan Doyle to Abraham Lincoln, and its relationship to colonialism and Orientalism. So get a blanket to hide under, dust off your board, and light a couple of candles. This is Playing History. Yeah, I actually thought that this this episode was going to be pretty interesting from the get-go. And I think the main reason for that is I already know that it's going to be like a pretty unique entry amongst the catalog of games that we cover. You know, I just feel like the Ouija board, like the history of it must contain more about the culture, the history, and also go much deeper than a lot of the other board games that we cover in a way that will like really let us think about like human history and like the social context around it in a more deep level than a lot of other board games you might choose to to cover on the show right yeah i think one reason for that is because ouija is not gamey in the same way that a lot of the other board games that we would want to talk about are even when we played it yesterday yeah the rules were basically just like put the board down and ask it questions and put your hands on it and yeah. dust it off. <laughs> that yeah. was the big, the big rule was dust yeah. it off. There's no way to win at Ouija. <laughs> Not really. Right. So no. there's less to cover in terms of sort of changes in design decisions mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, I think another reason for that is because Ouija like straddles this line between game and like general party trick yeah and then divination tool right so it's yeah yeah. it's sort of more like tarot cards yeah right than than like it is like monopoly or clue or something but i think like amongst the realm of like divination tools i i would say it's probably pretty close to a board game it is it takes place on a board and so like it 
I think for us, it like it fills in the category. But I think for people who are less liberal about the definition of game than us, I think a lot of people would still see it as counting as a game for for those who that's important, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, unless you're like a particular flavor of young queer, you're yeah. not gonna have tarot cards in your house. But most houses, like a lot of family houses, have Ouija boards. Yeah. Like, we just had one. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have right. to buy it or anything. It's just, yeah. like, under my like family's bed. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> For all those dusty board games are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, like, a pretty common classic to have in your house. So that's why I say it straddles that line, right? Cause yeah. It, it's, it's not rules heavy. It's not... It, it doesn't feel like a commitment in the same way that Settlers of Catan does or another game in that it doesn't take very long mm -hmm. and yeah. you don't have to think a lot about the rules yeah. and you don't even really have to invest yourself in the way that you do with Monopoly or with any kind of game where you have to win. Mm, yeah. You can sort of just observe. You can even just observe. You don't have to put your hands on it, right? Yeah. Um, and you don't have to spend a lot of time really thinking about it. Yeah, but you might still pull it out like you would for other board games when you're bored at home with the family or friends. Yeah, so, it'd be like an evening's entertainment, yeah. right? So I think you wouldn't like pull out. Well, you might, but I think a lot of families wouldn't have a crystal ball to pull out in the same way or no. something. I also think that something that makes Ouija interesting for us is the question like why Ouija why do people have Ouija boards is <laughs> a yeah. lot more confusing than why do people have Monopoly boards or why do people have Clue boards yeah I think that's that's super interesting as well right you know right yeah. I think that it's a real with, question right yeah. I think I mean I think that with a lot of games the question is more like like why do people play snakes and ladders when it's such a boring bad game yeah or something like that whereas with Ouija, it's more like, like, what, why do people, <laughs> why, like, right. why? It's not, yeah. like, boring or bad. It's just, like, it kind of doesn't fit with a lot of things that people would want to do. Like, yeah. it's the kind of thing, even if your family's not superstitious, yeah. they would still, in like, have one, maybe, and enjoy playing yeah, it. like, probably, right? I think, especially for people like us of, like, a younger generation, like, I don't have... Well, I have experiences with only with seeing one friend in high school have a Ouija board and playing it in the back of the library, like at school. Like that's my one experience, but I don't really have the whole context of like why that friend would have any exposure to Ouija or have it at all. Like to me, it is sort of like uh, mystifying uh, as to why why people would would still have it around. Right. I didn't grew up with it as a fad in the same way but it was still prevalent right and i think not to jump too far forward but yeah. i think this is one reason why it's really enduring mm. is that it's the kind of thing that you keep finding people keep finding under their parents beds mm. or in their closet and being like what's this maybe i can play it with my friends yeah and being really spooked because it's this mysterious thing that you don't know why it's in your house yeah. You know, right? I think cuz it go it has gone through many cycles of being a fad and then being unpopular and it seems very generational the way yeah. That that's happened. Yeah. 
Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's connected to a lot of people rediscovering it through their families having a copy and wondering, like, what the hell is up with this board that talks to ghosts? I didn't know my yeah. mom talked to ghosts. Right. I mean, I mean, the last reason why I really am excited to learn more about this is because it genuinely, like, kind of freaked me out when we played it, <laughs> right? Yeah. In a way, like, I had never really sat down in the dark taking out the board, put my fingers on the, the little marker thing and like had it move on its own. And you claim to not have moved it. I did not. I didn't right? move it. I mean, we'll get into that in a bit, but I think that whole experience is, is intriguing, a little spooky, and I'm excited to learn more. Yeah, let's get into cool. it. So at its core, Ouija is part of a family of, of divination tools to like a larger, it belongs to like a larger subset of, of other things, right? It, and it definitely wasn't the first sort of tool in its family of speaking to ghosts and general tools like that. The speaking to ghosts family. Right. It's <laughs> a big family. Um, and I feel like we do need to go through some of its predecessors to, to understand before we get into the Ouija board itself. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, maybe we can start by explaining exactly what a Ouija board is. Oh, I would love to know how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, a Ouija board is um, a Ouija board is also called a talking board or a channeling board or a spirit board, whatever you call it. What it involves is a board with mm. the alphabet on it and sometimes with particular responses or common. Yeah. Yes or replies. no. Yeah, exactly. Had, yeah. Good night. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good night. And then, like a pointer that sits on some felt feet. Yeah. And participants touch the pointer. The pointer moves, and it indicates letters or numbers or the responses on the board. Yeah. That's sort of by how it itself, works, right? Yeah. So the whole family of divination tools around Ouija all involve some kind of touching things and they move right yeah. that's the the, yeah. the family of sort of divination tools that we're talking about the touching things and they move family right because there is a whole other family of divination tools that aren't really like this yeah, yeah. there's we're there's not really bunch. gonna get into yeah yeah you can you know people read things with like bones that they take out of yeah a, out of a baggie tarot cards those tea kinds leaves. of things tea leaves yeah um clouds yeah scrying which is looking into a fire mm. um but this family of tools all involve sort of like like i said touching things and they move yeah um and and maybe the tool that's the most similar to ouija is called a planchette mm. um which uses a similar pointer tool but add a pencil to that okay and the idea is you place it on a piece of paper instead of a board and the pencil writes or draws messages. Okay. So it will actually like write names and stuff. Yeah. That's a very old tool that has a long history that we can get into a little bit later. Okay. A few other related tools. There's one called table tipping where everybody puts their hands on the edges of like a circular table. Okay. And then you read aloud the alphabet 
one letter at a time and the table like tips oh for depending the on the le- letters yeah like, on, a, on a random quote-unquote letter yeah exactly yeah. so it will spell out messages by like just it's it's very tedious and right. takes a long time but this was very popular it's like a unique it's not like any table there's a specific table that was built for table tipping or like manufactured for table tipping no i think people would use just tables i think Probably it would involve like a circular table that you could tip in any number of directions. Mm, yeah. Um, probably not something super steady. Right. Yeah. But a nice wobbly table, a nice wobbly circular table, yeah. which I imagine in the 19th century was pretty common. Mm. Uh, so that was extremely popular in the 1800s. So then you have the dowsing rod, which is sort of a Y shaped stick or a rod. And you actually hold the two branches and the stem goes out forward. Okay. And traditionally, people would use dowsing rods looking for water, but you can also use it to find oil. There is a big fad of finding oil with dowsing rods. Like out, out in the woods, or how would you find Yeah, like during oil? the oil rush, right? Like people would go mm. out and look, look for, for oil, oil everywhere. <laughs> yeah, with their dowsing rod. And people also would look for answers yeah. <laughs> to their questions. Um, and yeah. basically the mechanics of the dowsing rod are that it tips when you have found an object. Yeah. So then you have pendulum oracles, yeah. also pretty similar to Ouija. Essentially, you hold a pendulum over a board with the alphabet on it. And the pendulum swings towards different letters to spell out different things. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's or sometimes wild. it'll land... Yeah on the letters like mm. it's sort of mechanics like that right yeah um you can also interpret the way it moves to find objects again or answer a yes or no question yeah so how does how does a ouija ouija board work so all of these divination tools including the ouija board make use of something called the idiomotor response the idea is your body responds physically automatically subconsciously in a certain way to certain things so if you ask a question that you know the answer to or you're expecting a certain answer to then subconsciously your hands will move you in that direction even if you don't consciously will that to happen oh (laughs) (laughs) is that it yeah that's basically it are you sure it's not ghosts? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not ghosts. This was a big thing in like the early 20th century, late 19th century. Okay. There were a lot of people trying to debunk this because spiritualism, as we'll get into, was so popular. There were so many people mm. doing things like conducting seances and using these kinds of divination tools. And it, they would do things like spelling out names of dead relatives and answering questions that only one person at the table knows the answer to. Yeah. But then what happens is that person is touching the Ouija board and subconsciously they're thinking like the answer is Charlie or whatever. And so it's moving towards that. It reminds me a bit of like magic tricks where they like try to tell you what card that you're thinking of in a similar way. But this is like only with yourself. Yeah, right? It's the power of thought. And part of what's so smart about the Ouija board specifically is that in the rules, it asks you to 
only think about the question and the answer yeah. while you're touching the yeah pointer which is actually intentional yeah it wouldn't work otherwise really right not really and that's why it was so weird for me playing it having already done this research yesterday night yeah knowing that this is what was happening so i don't know if that impacted your... impacted what was going on and i don't know in what way it would have impacted it <laughs> right right yeah so i don't know that was a trip almost but... like a placebo <laughs> right yeah yeah I mean, um, that's that's really wild. I mean, that because the, the mechanisms of this sort of stuff is so like more abstract, like there's no like real quote unquote science based logic answer that is like instantly provable. I can see how that really leads to it being more accepted by the mainstream in a certain way. Right. Mm, right. Yeah. If it was just like, well, it's electricity, then everyone's like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> but even myself hearing this now, it's like, well, that's still like, wow. <laughs> you know, I don't really like people could say that's not I don't really think that's what's really happening. You know, it must be ghosts. Yeah. Or something else. The ghost is yeah. possessing my body to respond yeah. in this way. Right. There's that level of uh, the unknown unconscious that people can still attribute to, to a spirit. Or like something like that. Right? Yeah. I mean, in some way, it's still, it's in the same realm of mystery as dreams, yeah. where we can't quite prove that dreams work in a specific way, because they work in such a complicated way in response to our bodies. So it's yeah. easy for people to still say things like, I dreamed it, so it's going to happen. Like, it was a prophetic dream. Yeah. Or to believe in things like déjà vu, where you... Mm -hmm. yeah. Like where you're you you imagine that you've dreamed something that you're now seeing, mm, yeah. Um, because it's not exactly sort of like one to one provable in that way. Yeah, yeah. Our bodies are really mysterious. I think it's wild. Uh, yeah, like it was wild to me that the Ouija board still moved in a certain way. Yeah, I and mean it it's felt, great, <laughs> right? It felt to you like I was moving it, and I was really trying not to move it. Yeah. So. So you definitely didn't move it. I yeah. definitely didn't, but also yeah. kind of I did, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, I think for me specifically with the Ouija board, I think the way that it answers questions and like the accuracy you can get, I guess, I think some of the other tools that you mentioned, like table tipping and things like that, I feel like the setup for Ouija leads to it to be more believable in some ways because the answers that you can get from it are sort of more concrete and defined in some ways, right? People just like this, like, believing in spirituality in general, in some ways. Yeah. I think what we'll find is that one of the reasons why Ouija ended up so popular is because it's fast, it's accurate, and it's easy. Yeah. And that differentiates it really a lot from tools like the pendulum, which is, like, pretty hard to operate, or the planchette, which can result in really weird, inaccurate, random stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Or table tipping, which takes a really long time. <laughs> uh, like, yeah. having to speak through the whole alphabet one letter at a time is really frustrating. Yeah. It doesn't have that, like, whoa moment, the first, like, Ouija sort of reading that you do. Yeah, exactly.
I mean, so some of these tools have existed for, for quite a long time, I guess. I think probably the further back you go, the more impactful it would have been, right? I think there was less things figured out about the world. So something sort of close to the Ouija would have been pretty, like, intense at the time. You'd be surprised. Oh, okay. Um, you would think that divination tools would be more important the less that science was a thing. Yeah. But it's not really true. Oh, sick. Um, but we'll get to that in a bit. Okay. Uh, one thing that's important about the history of Ouija and the history of these kinds of specific divination tools is that people really, at the time liked to ground what they were doing in like ancient history and especially ancient exotic history mm. right so yeah. so the ouija board that we have isn't a hasbro ouija board it's actually a knockoff published by a canadian company yeah uh and it describes the ouija board as an egyptian talking board that's not true at all. It's not Egyptian. It has no connection to Egypt whatsoever. So there's a lot of these kinds of myths. There's one myth that Pythagoras of the Pythagorean theorem fame. Yeah. Um, That's crazy because I'm sure he yeah. did more than that theorem. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he did a lot of shit. But they used him. Yeah, so they used him. They were like, Pythagoras used to use the Ouija board for divination. And it's not true. No. There's no evidence at all. And in fact, that story itself, I read somebody who debunked it and they said that the earliest evidence that they could find of that kind of claim was from a book from like the late 1700s, early 1800s. Yeah. That was also like entirely sort of falsifying. No, it wasn't even from the late 70s. It was like a book written in the late 1800s about somebody in the 1700s who had apparently said that Pythagoras, like it went right. back like that. Such an urban myth. It's such, such a, it's a true myth. It's just a total urban myth. Yeah. And there's a, there were other people who had advertised it as like an ancient Chinese custom. There's all kinds of right. histories that are actually just false. Yeah. Um, what there is evidence for is that thousands of years ago, some cultures did make use of certain divination tools that made use of the idiomotor response. Right. None of them used Ouija boards. Yeah. However, there is some evidence that ancient Romans used pendulum oracles set over an alphabet, which is pretty right. similar to the Ouija board. So I have a quote from the later Roman Empire by Ammianus Marcellinus. Uh, it says... My lords, in an unlucky moment, we put together out of laurel twigs in the shape of the Delphic tripod, the hapless little table before you. Oh, these are two, side note, these are two guys who have been, like, captured and accused of a crime. Yep. So they're putting out this pendulum board now. We consecrated it with cryptic spells and a long series of magical rites, and at last made it work. The way in which it did so, when we wished to consult it about hidden matters, was this. It was placed in the middle of a room thoroughly fumigated with spices from Arabia, and was covered with a round dish made from the alloys of various metals. The outer rim of the dish was cunningly engraved with the twenty-four letters of the alphabet separated by accurate intervals. A man dressed in linen garments and wearing linen sandals, 
with a fillet around his head and green twigs from a lucky tree in his hand, officiated as priest. After uttering a set prayer to invoke the divine power which presides over prophecy, he took his place above the tripod as his knowledge of the proper ritual had taught him, and set swinging a ring suspended by a very fine cotton thread which had been consecrated by a mystic formula. The ring, moving in a series of jumps over the marked spaces, came to rest on particular letters which made up hexameters appropriate to the questions put and in perfect scansion and rhythm, like the lines produced at Delphi or by the oracle of the Brenkidae. Brenkidae? Brenkidae. Anyway, so those guys ended up getting executed, apparently, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, or this? <laughs> like, I don't think this saved them, is what I mean. <laughs> I think this was like an attempt to save themselves. But yeah, so yeah. this is from a text that was written like in ancient Rome, right? So yeah, this is some evidence that this kind of thing existed. Um, yeah. There's also... Fuji, which is a style of planchette writing, which is still used by some Taoists, specifically the Chuanzhen school of Taoism. Um, historically, it's still in use, actually, in some temples in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, um, and also in parts of China and Malaysia. Yeah. The idea is, so I mentioned planchette writing, which is where you have the pencil and you sort of move the pointer with the pencil like mm -hmm. a Ouija board. Yeah. With this, the brush is... It's actually more like a dowsing rod in some ways. The brush is the stem, and the two branches are held by two different people. Okay. And you suspend it over sand, usually. And you can spell out characters. Yep. People would write poetry um, or consult Procedurally spirits. generated... <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can watch videos of it. It's pretty intense, actually. Yeah. We'll throw it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, um, it's specifically associated with summoning the spirit of a concubine who was murdered in an outhouse <laughs> by a jealous first wife. So I kept finding, like, references of the, like, spirit of the outhouse <laughs> or the spirit of the latrine. Yeah. Who would, like, um, people would specifically pray for like good fortune or whatever from, yeah. from her using um, this system of planchette writing. Um, though I couldn't exactly figure out whether she was murdered in the outhouse or whether she was made to clean the outhouse a lot by the jealous first wife and then died of anger. Mm. But either way, she sort of occupies the outhouse now. Um, yeah. That became popular in the Tang dynasty. So like 1500 years ago. Yeah. 1400 and it was by the time of the song dynasty it was uh pretty widespread the song mm -hmm. dynasty being about a thousand years ago right that is about the biggest sort of historical evidence that we have of these kinds of divination tools but even these are very different from ouija yeah i think actually so. and especially they're different from what I think a lot of people would associate with what Ouija, like, is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, like, what we have as a Ouija board. And it's probably similar to what a lot of, like, Western people have when they think of a Ouija board or the Ouija boards they have at home. And that really is quite distanced from, from this sort of thing, I think, right? Yeah, and I think the key thing is that the Ouija board isn't the end of a long, continuous tradition of this kind of divination tool. It's not like, 
Like an evolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like people in ancient Rome passed down their pendulum oracle writing all the way to us now, to the mm. Ouija board. It was used in, like, some something similar to the Ouija yeah. board was used all this time ago, and there was a huge break, and then it got popular. Yeah. They're just, like, creations based out of our own, like, human traits, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be related. It could be discovered multiple places at multiple times exactly. by different people, right? Which seems to be what happened with the Ouija board. Mm. But of course, as always, I think people felt like it would lend legitimacy to their divinations if they could connect it to some ancient history, and specifically an ancient and mysterious history of, you know, yeah, exotic I mean, colonized lands. So from that, it sounds like Ouija is more of a sort of a new world Sort of like Western civilization, colonialist uh, sort of tool. So at what point did these spiritual tools start gaining popularity in the West? Yeah, so a lot of people tie it back to a few events in the 1800s. Mm. First, the Industrial Revolution, right? So... Really? Yeah, so yeah. you get this... All these sort of new technologies that let you do all kinds of things. So in a world where you can make your clothes instantly, where you can travel at speeds that were unthinkable to your parents, in this kind of world, it's not so far-fetched to think that you might make technologies that could bring back the dead or let you communicate across yeah. the barrier between life and death. So, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is not only an example of this, but in some ways a precursor or even an inspiration in mm. terms of the connection between technology and science and the sort of permeability or mutability of death. Yeah, for sure. And also, like, I mean, the tools we talked about that were used in ancient times were definitely not of this, didn't seem like they would be of that sort of same idea. Yes and no. I think that it's it's not that these tools are not the same thing. It's that people become more interested again in using these tools because the idea is floating around. Yeah, because the they're thinking about this stuff already. Of society at this yeah. point, and also because a lot of these tools get marketed as scientific. Yeah. Um. So I mean, they people, are scientific. We <laughs> yeah. So when so when they're called you know spiritualists, right, or spiritualism. Yeah. Um, this sort of group of people who start believing in the capacity of people to talk to the dead. People start talking about it in terms of electricity. They talk about it in terms of um, sort of scientific language that was yeah. being used in the Photons. time. Photons. Yeah. And the ether, right? People ether. talk about the yeah. ether, which is both like at the time a term that gets used to talk about the space between atoms or like empty space. People thought yeah. empty space was taken up by ether. And people use it in a sort of spiritual sense. Right. It's heavily linked, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so for spiritualists, the uh, the kind of contradiction that we would understand between like being logical and reasonable and scientific and also being like believing in ghosts and wanting to commune with the dead, that kind of contradiction didn't really exist. Mm, yeah um they were also christians a lot of them and they also didn't see a contradiction there sure they didn't see it as like contravening their beliefs 
Um, Whoa. Except for Catholics. Specifically. It's always Catholics. <laughs> um, <laughs> those Catholics. Well, Jesus brought someone back from the dead, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Pope's worried because fucking, you know, could ruin yeah. his power. Right? Yeah. Who wants the Pope if you can just talk to the dead directly? But yeah, it's the Pope's job. That's the Pope's job. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. then in 1848... In sort of this context of people really thinking about death a lot, you yeah. get these two women, Margaret and Kate Fox, who they're these sisters and they start becoming famous because they claim to be able to talk to a ghost who lives in their house. It turns out later that they actually were able to crack their toes on command and they used their toe cracking to simulate like knocks oh. that would be responses to yes or no questions. So they would ask the ghosts like knock once for yes or twice for no, but they were actually cracking their toes. <laughs> so they would have like reporters come in and be like, listen to this ghost. Yeah, exactly. Ask yeah. it anything. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they yeah. like made up a whole story for it. Um, they came out about it being a falsehood. <laughs> They came out of it being a falsehood later in life, and they actually demonstrated how it was false. But a lot of spiritualists, even to this day, downplay the fact that they came out as frauds later because they're like one cornerstone of the founding of this movement. This yeah. this story of theirs. Like spread. People loved it. Yeah. People right. were really into the idea that these women could talk to the dead. Yeah. These girls. Um yeah. So then the Civil War happens in America. Yeah. And a lot of people suddenly have dead relatives with unfinished mm. business. So you get a lot of mediums and psychics. You get a lot of new divination tools, a lot of seances. Yeah. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln, wife of Abraham Lincoln, holds seances in the White House. Yeah. Um, after their and son She dies. was the one speaking. No. She Oh, I mean, she was, she was, she wasn't dead. She was alive. Oh, no, I meant she. <laughs> <laughs> she, she came back from the dead. And held I meant dead. like, so she's the one that's speaking to the ghost. Or... She like, I think from, from what I understand, she invited like mediums oh, okay, into the house to hold too, too. seances. Right. Um, though I don't know for sure. Uh, Maybe it was her. <laughs> yeah, it could have been her. Yeah. Anyways, their son died of typhoid fever in 1862 and they started having like real seances in the white house to try and bring him back. Um, there was a ghost club in 19th century London and it was founded by Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, man. Side note, a distant relative of mine, <laughs> apparently, yeah. but Charles Dickens was a member. There were all these like yeah. famous authors in the 19th century who got together and like, investigated ghosts in literally their ghost club it was called yeah. it still exists it's called a ghost club i mean this stuff <laughs> is so inspiring fun. right yeah we're aspiring like artists yeah this is a big a big source of like whoa a lot of content ideas from this sort of thing and people at the time sounds like were also consuming a lot of this sort of stuff well and they believed you know? it right i mean yeah. the, the ghost club like purported to investigate whether ghosts existed. So they like sat around and talked a lot about yeah. ghosts and the sort of, in a sciencey way, like yeah. similarly to how we would have like 
like chemistry class or something. I don't know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, this was like quite mainstream popular. Yeah. Especially once you get after the Civil War into the late 1800s. Yeah. It's not like today where maybe it's like leaving ghosts, like what? It's yeah, it's like, like a sort of weird thing for kids and like ants. Yeah, like right? today. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas before, it really was more like accepted as a concept that could be true. It's like a common widespread belief. Yeah. Um, Why wouldn't ghosts exist? Right. Yeah. I think it was like. I think I've seen a lot of people compare it to sort of new agey things in our generation, like new agey spiritual beliefs. Mm, yeah. You know, people who talk about like chakra and energy or whatever and like yeah. Zen. Zen and like do yoga to like for like, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. new agey people. These things are popular today still. So. Yeah. Or even, I mean, even people who are fans of astrology and like tarot cards. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think horoscopes. Yeah, this stuff is all yeah. in a way not directly but indirectly descended from this kind of spiritualist mm. belief. Yeah. System. Yeah, I mean that sort of thing is popular here. Remember we were talking a bit before about like that book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Now I was a big fan of that book. Of course, big at the time. It was huge. And I mean in a way that stuff does sort of link back to the orientalism and, and like viewing this like other culture as being part of that, right? How does that does that tie into the whole like science aspect of people's beliefs at the time as well or Yeah, so orientalism as you know <laughs> is this ideology that in some ways is rooted in colonialism and in some ways existed long before. And the main idea is viewing big air quotes, the East as opposite to the West. And so the West gets propped up as rational and scientific and logical and masculine and mm-hmm powerful and the east its opposite becomes sort of mystical and mysterious and incomprehensible and irrational and emotional and feminized right so part of the reason why these kinds of divination tools get so much cachet from adopting like eastern aesthetics like nebulously eastern aesthetics yeah is because of this perception of the East as containing these kinds of like primal wisdoms or whatever that, you know, we don't have in the West because we're very rational. Like we're doing now having a seance. Uh (laughs) Yeah. I mean, ghosts are in the ether. So yeah, they're in the ether and we're connecting with them with electricity with our light bulbs. So it's different than the Eastern people. Yeah. But we still can, you know, dress up in yellow face while we do the seance. (laughs) That'll help. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's one aspect of it. What also happens economically or infrastructurally is that uh, there's a lot of trade happening with like East and Southeast and South Asia at this time. And you get pottery and rugs, fabrics, spices, and other kinds of luxury goods and commodities Mm -hmm. coming in from Asia into wealthy homes in Western Europe and eventually America. Yeah. Um, And so these aesthetics become really popular because they're associated with wealth 
Mm, yeah, of course. And then, because of this knowledge and consumption of quote-unquote Eastern philosophies becomes also a marker of class and free thinking and status, social status. Like, similarly to, again, sort of like New Age philosophies in the 1990s being associated with, like, wealthy white women, right? (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. Funny thing is that a lot of the most popular books about, like, Asian mysticism at the time, like late 19th century, early 20th century, were actually written by a white Chicago-based lawyer whose name was William Walker Atkinson. Very white. Very white. Yeah. Yeah. So he took on like a bunch of different fake names and wrote all these books. Oh, under a pseudonym. Un- yeah, under a pseudonym. You gotta do the pseudonym. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta do the, the like Holy Indian dude. pseudonym. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, oh, man. Yeah, so he writes all these books and uh, basically out of his ass about (laughs) like making up shit about sort of mysticism and this stuff gets like pretty broadly adopted, pretty like widely read. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the common thing, the common story would be like, I'm just retelling this. My good friend, this Asian (laughs) man, told me about it before he died. (laughs) Now, you know, like, now I will communicate it to you. Yeah. Um, So when you combine all of this sort of Orientalist thinking with the interest in death and in communing with the dead and with spirits, you get people using this sort of image of the ambiguously South Asian fortune teller with like a cape yeah. and a turban and like you yeah. know there's other things in the Ouija board that persist today right oh totally you know these, like Zoltan or yeah whatever? Zoltan you yeah. go to the local arcade yeah big Zoltan is telling you your fortune right yeah it all ties into the same sort of thing right yeah yeah exactly all of these sort of mediums at the time would use the notion of having oriental wisdom or of being Asian to lend credibility to their claim that their technology can actually tell the future, talk to the dead yeah, or whatever else you want to do. Anything. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they all know how to do it in (laughs) Asia. Yeah. In the Orient. Yeah. So, I mean, we're set up now for a bunch of these things like popping up, right? Yeah. Where do we get into the specific form of a talking board, right? The Ouija board itself. Yeah, so it's in the mid to late 1800s that you start seeing all of these kinds of tools, like I've been saying. Table tipping, really popular evening activity. This Con- is in the, in, the, in the same era that we just talked about. Like yeah, the rise of exactly. The As spiritualism starts to come up, yeah. table tipping becomes a big thing, like nighttime seances, planchette writing. Um, you also get dial plate talking boards which are like imagine like a like a sort of steampunk dial <laughs> that's it yeah but like it has you different like letters of the alphabet it. yeah the, i don't know i don't know how you like read it but it yeah. like reads different you know it it's was like pretty cool dial or something. yeah right um yeah but talking boards become extremely popular a little later towards the 1880s mm. and one thing that makes them extremely popular very quickly is that you don't need any kind of supernatural abilities or training to use them you can sort of pick them up and go yeah a lot of these other technologies sort of require somebody to teach you 
And apparently some yeah. mediums were not fans of the talking boards because it essentially cuts them out of the picture. It's yeah, like automation, <laughs> like their jobs got automated really yeah. quickly by the, the talking board. The market's looking rough, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so people go to these like spiritualist camps. There's one particular set of spiritualist camps in Ohio, and this is where the talking boards get popularized. I don't, I still haven't been able to find exactly what spiritualist camps are. They're like music festivals. <laughs> I thought of it, yeah, I thought this it was like I'm Burning Man or something, right? right? <laughs> it's like, oh man, let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's Do go to a like, lot of drugs. <laughs> like, get really high ghosts. and talk to ghosts. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sort of seems to be like halfway between like a music festival and like a summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. like you go to like a big mansion and you like hang out in this mansion yeah with like a bunch of other rich people for like a few weeks in the summer and you do some ouija board stuff yeah um and it's in these camps that the ouija board really starts to spread i think there was i think i read like a newspaper article from i think 1886 yeah that talked about about one particular like instance of this camp yeah, exactly. Where they would use, like, a, a a talking board to convene with ghosts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, that makes sense, right? If you have a lot of people who don't have experience, this is, like you said, one of the easier ways to do it if it's what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. So these talking boards got popular in these camps, but I feel like we're veering back into the other episodes that we do where it's just, like, a capitalist that comes in, starts spreading... Make a lot of money off of this invention, right? So let's get to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. Yeah. So somebody fucking patents it uh, in 1891. The classic tale. <laughs> classic tale. Elijah Bond and Charles Kennard invented the Ouija board in 1891. Mm, these two men. <laughs> uh, so the story that I heard while I was doing my research mm. was that these guys were all at a party and that they, like, made up the sort of standard board shape and stuff at this party. And they named it Ouija because it was the Egyptian word for good luck. And it was also, like... <laughs> it was, like, on someone's pendant, like, it's the word cool Ouija. Word. They were like, we should call it Ouija. And she, like, opened her pendant. And, like, the word Ouija was, like, in her pen. I don't know. So get it tattooed on her back. <laughs> it's already tattooed in her back. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So they patent it. They bring on a guy named Washington Bowie, mm. um, who's a rich guy investor. Uh, they found the Kennard Novelty Company. Uh, but then Charles Kennard leaves... And founds another toy company, or a toy company, in Chicago. And he starts patenting other talking boards. <laughs> so there's all these other talking boards other than Ouija. There's one called the Volo, which Kennard makes. Okay. There's the Igili. <laughs> like, all okay. of them have these, like, absurd, like, <laughs> generic exotic names from, yeah. like, you know, people who have, like, never heard a word of... Any other language yeah. in their life. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so sure. then the original company files a suit for patent infringement, yeah. and Kennard actually is forced to apologize, which I think is really funny. Um, like, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I <laughs> ripped off your invention. Yeah. So they start manufacturing Ouija boards, uh, Elijah Bond and Washington Bowie do. Yeah. And 
Bowie hires and trains a man named William Fold. So through the process of, I guess, learning the business of manufacturing Ouija boards, William Fold gets the manufacturing rights to the Ouija boards. Um, I think after Bowie dies, something like that. Anyways, he starts manufacturing at a larger scale, and he becomes known as the board's inventor, eventually. (laughs) Yeah. So he doesn't actually, William Fold, doesn't actually see the board as a way to contact the dead, but he does see it as a way to answer questions. Okay. Sort of like how a lot of people would use tarot cards. Yeah. And he consults it for his business ventures, and he actually uh, builds a factory in the 20s on the Ouija board's advice to build more Ouija boards. <laughs> it has its own mind. <laughs> yeah, and then he falls off of that factory and yeah. dies. The Ouija's <laughs> taken over. The Ouija took it. <laughs> took his life. Oh, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, so he was shooting as, like, flipping a coin or something. I was like, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Man. Which... Unfortunate. I mean, arguably, it wouldn't be bad for, because yeah. if the whole thing of the Ouija board is that you unconsciously direct it towards the answer that you want, yeah. then... You'll know. It's your true self. Right? It's like when people say, flip a coin, but then you'll know. You'll know which answer you wanted, regardless of the result. Regardless of which one is head or tails yeah. or tails. Except yeah. with Ouija, it just tells you what you're your body wants yeah exactly exactly um the best yes man <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah right so Literally. i mean at this point this guy's pumping out Ouija boards because of the Ouija board yeah gains mass popularity yeah presumably makes a lot of money so yeah. the Ouija board was right in that sense yeah i mean it became a, a sensation though right yeah like people well people are already interested in seances and stuff but yeah. now you can do it Anytime you want, comfort of your own home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And without having to, like, hire and pay a medium, right? So it becomes something that's much more accessible economically to people. Then World War I happens, and a lot more people die. And then a lot more people uh, want to, like, contact the spirits of the dead mm. um, in the 20s. Also when people have, like, a fair amount of disposable income. Yeah. So it hits a boom in the 20s, and... There were apparently also sales spikes in the 1940s, like after World War II. Yeah. In the 1960s, like after, <laughs> like, you know, during the Vietnam War, basically. <laughs> like, all the wars are the, the Ouija. Yeah, exactly. I Bad mean, stuff happens. People want to... Death and loss is a real driver, right? In a yeah. sad, capitalist way. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think also, it's like what I was saying before about the sort of generational interest mm-hmm. where, you know, people find Ouija boards that their parents owned or learn about it as they get older and like want to try it. Mm-hmm. They hear stories from their grandparents or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if this was part of how it gets passed on. Right. So then you get all these kinds of like weird stories because everybody uses Ouija boards. Like everything has happened with Ouija boards some people have investigated murders with Ouija boards. Uh, (laughs) Unsurprisingly, uh, some people, there was, there have been a couple of cases of people like murdering somebody because a Ouija board told them to do it. Using a Ouija board as like an excuse. 
That's probably didn't, doesn't hold up. Well, I mean, if you really want to murder someone, the Ouija board <laughs> will tell you to murder <laughs> yeah, them. That's true. Like, you do want to murder them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, in the 90s, a jury used a Ouija board to decide their verdict. And apparently, according to them, summoned the spirit of the victim, oh, which is great. Sounds like Phoenix Wright or something. Right? In the 90s. Yeah. In the 90s. 90s is recent. That's so recent. It's very recent, yeah. Um, People write poetry using Ouija boards. That's was, cool to me, though. Yeah. I do like the combination of like these talking tools. Yeah. And creative output. Absolutely. There's one person who actually like recently like won some awards for the poetry they made with the Ouija board mm. who didn't they didn't use it like in their belief to contact the dead but it was more to like organize their thoughts mm. or to, yeah. like get answers right so it actually worked pretty well for them there was one author who claimed to be channeling the spirit of Mark Twain yeah. which i personally see as more of a marketing gimmick <laughs> yeah. than a you know yeah. creative tactic yeah, yeah, for um, sure. One of the sort of cornerstones of our modern understanding of the Ouija board comes from the 1970s film, The Exorcist, uh, where, you know, the girl who gets possessed by the demon starts to show symptoms of possession after playing a Ouija board by herself. Mm, shouldn't do that. Shouldn't do that. Yeah. It's, it's don't do that. Yeah. It's dangerous. So people start to get scared of the Ouija board. Or see it as a sort of object of, like, hauntings and horror and possession. Which brings us to the Ouija film franchise, 2014 and 2016. There was a movie? There's a Ouija movie in 2014, 2015? Yeah, there are two Ouija movies. Ouija 1, Ouija 2? Ouija and Ouija Origin of Evil. Now, the original Ouija, 2014, Mm -hmm. apparently pretty bad. Okay. But the sequel, I've heard, is really good. This is what I've heard. It's exciting, yeah. Yeah, I've heard the original has like a 9% in Rotten Tomatoes, and the sequel has like a 70% or something. Yeah. It's like a significant jump. (laughs) Uh, But the slogan of the original film is, keep telling yourself it's just a game. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. I really want to watch the sequel and potentially the original, but I feel like I'm not in the mood for horror right now. No. <laughs> Too real. Too real. And that's the story of the Ouija board. Yeah. You know, in some ways, I actually feel pretty refreshed <laughs> after learning about all this stuff. I feel like it's easy on this sort of podcast to get bogged down by a lot of these more typical stories about games being conceived and then just being popularized by capitalists, by people who steal ideas... Yeah, like genius inventors or whatever. And, you know, we're in the era of the Miss Monopoly ad. Oh my god. It's making its rounds. (laughs) He's an investment guru. (laughs) Right. And, you know, Ouija, of course, has has its part in that. I think it is from that, you know, the version that most people know and have purchased is from that sort of same origins. But... I also think it's nice to really learn that that sort of thing is something that humans have used for such a long time. I think it's, yeah, it's interesting to think about the context that Ouija came from, because games never come out of a vacuum, right? Especially games that are so household names, 
these games only become popular because the seeds of that interest already existed within society. Yeah. Right? Within the societies that they came from. So it's not just like somebody came with a great idea and then everybody wanted to play it. It's that there was a culture that resulted in this idea. And in this case, there was a culture that specifically already played with talking boards before Ouija came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, before that also, like, these kinds of other divination tools. Yeah. And yeah, I think that it's interesting also to think about the sort of the long history of human interest in, like, spirituality and communicating with the dead and with the unknown. And also with using randomness to make decisions to make decisions yeah exactly right i think that we see this beyond ouija in tarot cards we see it in any kind of divination really yeah and definitely even people flipping a coin are tapping into a long history of leaving our fate to chance and then finding divinity or spirituality in that chance right or finding meaning in that chance yeah It's interesting to think about how games don't just come out of desires to develop skills Mm -hmm. or sort of rational strategic interests, especially when it comes to board games. I think people want to talk a lot about the history of games and war, Mm, games like Risk. um, It's really easy to do that. Yeah, which I think we want to talk about in the future also. But I think it's really interesting to think about how games came as much from this way of thinking as they did from war games and strategy games. Yeah. You know, gambling, (laughs) like, comes out of this tradition, right? Like... Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, right? This realm of, like, culture, like, already existed. And Ouija is just the game manifestation of that sort of culture that exists. Yeah. Just one manifestation. one manifestation. One game manifestation, yeah. And it's true, like... In our society, when people think about games, it isn't usually like these war, fighting, battle games that are sort of thought of, but games really can come from all these different sources. This is the game manifestation of the spiritualism craze that existed. Yeah. There's other things that exist and games are yet made from that. Yeah. And I think also the, our desire to play games doesn't just come from a desire for strategy or mm. for mastery. Yeah. Like, our desire to play games also comes from partly a desire to communicate with the dead, <laughs> to talk to ghosts. Yeah. Or to, like... It's interacting with a system. Yeah, exactly. It's, right? That's what, at a core. And that system doesn't have yeah. to be rooted in winners and losers. Yeah, exactly. board control. <laughs> yeah, it can be rooted in yeah. trying to find answers to questions. Yeah. Or trying to find meaning in, like, chaos or confusion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think another takeaway for me is the sort of Orientalism angle that... I mean, it's built into Ouija. There's a guy with the crystal ball Yeah, there's a turban guy on the cover of the game. Bonks, yeah, which, and many... You know, actually, there were a bunch of... Um, I saved this. We can look at them. We'll, we'll post them yeah, in the show notes. show notes. But I found this really amazing listicle of different Ouija boards from different periods in history. Mm. And so many of them on the boards themselves have oh, like really gross racist depictions. <laughs> that's way worse. <laughs> yeah, right? Imagine that you can't even ask a question without looking at like... 
a really shitty racist like this. Oh no. That's yeah, this real is bad. this is actually called Raja. This board. <laughs> this is this is a Raja board. Made in Chicago. <laughs> the Raja Far East talking board. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So Yeah. I think it's uh I mean these things have lasting effects. Right. right? It's not one and done bygones be bygones last generation sort of stuff and not only that but i think that you know if you think about tabletop games that are more recent if you think about all kinds of different any kind of board game that involves like a warlock character or magic yeah probably has some of this iconography yeah and spiritualism more broadly and i would argue even maybe ouija specifically is like an origin point of this for sure. And a way that it gets transmitted over and over to the next generation. Like, the yeah. fact that the 1960s edition of the talking board still calls it an Egyptian board, that's 50... Not 50 years. It's like 70 years after the game was first patented. And in the 60s, they should fucking know <laughs> that it's not Egyptian. It's not important. <laughs> not um, to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll get into this topic... Probably a lot as we make more episodes of this podcast. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's tons of examples of board games that are, like, stolen wholesale from Asia and patented, (laughs) you know, or games that use this kind of imagery. Yeah. I mean, all the way up into nowadays, you have, like, Euro games and stuff that are all about colonialism and strategically colonizing yeah you know africa and asia and indigenous peoples in north and south america sucks not great yeah not great but we just like one of the earlier board game examples of it so here we are so here we are here we are that's it for the show this week thanks for listening as always you can follow us uh on apple podcasts spotify podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts you can find me on Twitter at Kaylin DM. That's K-A-E-L-A-N-D-M. On Instagram at Kaylin Builds Worlds. Or you can join my Substack. <laughs> I just made it. I'm really excited. It's Kaylin.substack.com. Yeah. We try to release episodes once a month. You can find me on my socials at, at Atranimal for most of them. Uh, and see you next time.